Good morning. If you have a Bible, I invite you to open it up to the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, as we continue our journey through this book, all about the greatness of the Son of God. To get you thinking about what we're going to be focusing on this morning, I just have a couple questions for you to think about. Do you you ever stop and consider why you are living life the way you are? Why you do the things you do? (laughs) Why you make the choices that you make? I think many, many of us, maybe most of the time, we just live our lives. We just do the things that we have gotten used to doing uh, without thinking all that much about why we're doing the things we're doing. Um, we've got our hands full, you know, just earning a living, taking care of our families, doing, doing the things we do to really stop and, uh, you know, take the time and ask, what's behind all that? What, what is motivating that? What, what is it that we're pursuing in all of that? The thing is, though, we really do need to stop and think about it. And one of the reasons we do is because of what Scripture teaches us about faith, particularly the book of Hebrews, particularly the book of Hebrews chapter 11, which is all about faith. Faith is so critical. Um, We've talked about it before, but faith is... Authentic faith, real thing. I mean, there's, there's different definitions of faith out there, but faith as the Bible defines it is absolutely crucial so that we can become connected to the God who made us, to experience His forgiveness, to live life in connection with Him. It's absolutely essential to do that. And the way this book and this chapter defines faith, and the way it shows us what real faith looks like with all of these examples of people who had genuine faith, it shows us that faith is not simply something we believe with our minds. Faith is also about what we pursue with our lives. So Hebrews 11.6, we we looked at it the last time we were in Hebrews. Let's look at it again. Look what it says. Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith, it is impossible to please God, for whoever would draw near to God, and that ultimately is what life is all about, drawing near to God, whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists, and that he rewards those who seek him. Now, do you see? Do you see it there? The part that says that we must believe that God rewards those who seek him. What does that mean? Think about that. To quote John Piper, what it means is you cannot please God. If you don't come to him 
for reward. To experience God's pleasure, to live life the way He intends for you to live, you must pursue the rewards that He has promised to those who trust Him. In other words, looking forward, anticipating, pursuing God's reward is an essential part of faith. And I want us to spend some time just thinking that through. Why is that true? Why does it say that? Because I think, personally, I think this, so you don't have to be convinced I'm right, but this is what I think. Um, I think that pursuing God's reward is an underappreciated part of what it means to live by faith. Your motive matters. What you're pursuing in all of your doing and all of your deciding, what it is you're after matters. I think that confusion about this is one reason why many Christians end up making choices that they shouldn't make and end up regretting. I think it hinders us from really living life the way Jesus wants us to and experience, experiencing victory over the temptations that we face. And I think a big source of confusion about this is, is this view that, that says that seeking reward is inherently, in and of itself, selfish and unloving. We're not supposed to be motivated by what we get out of anything. We're supposed to do the right thing simply because it's the right thing, without any thought of reward, whether we gain anything from what we do or not. So the idea of pursuing reward is somehow less than truly Christian. And on the face of it, that seems to make sense. That seems right. But there are a couple of big problems with that idea. And the first big problem is what this chapter teaches. What we see right here in verse 6, it says that whoever would draw near to God must believe that he rewards those who seek him. That's an interesting word, must. That means it's essential, it's not optional. So that believing that God will reward you for seeking him is a necessary part of faith. And then as you go through the rest of the chapter, we have example after example of people who did just that, who lived their lives pursuing the rewards that God promised them. And we're going to look at a few of them so that you can see it. So that's one problem, is, is what we're actually taught here in Scripture, that pursuing reward is a necessary part of faith. The other problem is, with this idea that we should never be motivated by reward, is we just can't help it. We just can't help it. it it's how we're wired. It's part of how God made us. We pursue reward, whether we think we should or not, whether we want to or not. We do. 
So the question really is not, should you pursue reward? The question really is this, what rewards are you pursuing? What rewards are you pursuing in the choices you make, in the things that you do every day of your life? Because here's the thing. If you're not pursuing the reward that God has promised, the rewards that His Son Jesus obtained for us through His death and resurrection, and that He promises to bring to ultimate fulfillment in us, And for us, if you're not seeking the rewards that are found in Jesus, then you're living for some other rewards. And if you do that, you will not experience God's pleasure. And you will not experience the ultimate joy that he created you to know. Faith includes pursuing God's rewards no matter what it costs you because you believe that what you will gain in pursuing him and his reward will be so much greater than anything you might lose and that is what we're going to see in these historical examples of faith from the Old Testament these are people who believed that God's rewards were greater than any other reward they might have had. And that's why they obeyed him. And so we're going to look at just a few. We only have time for a few. But I would encourage you to take time later today or this week and read through the whole chapter and read through all of these examples of people who lived this way. And then look their stories up. Go back into the Old Testament. You know, if your Bible has a concordance or an index with names, you go back and you read their stories, or you can look them up online. Use the Blue Letter Bible or something. Just type in the name and it'll tell you where they are found in the Old Testament. Read their stories. So we're going to start in verse 8 of chapter 11, and then we'll kind of hopscotch to a couple of different places. So verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. God appeared to Abraham when he was living in Ur of the Chaldees, which is in Mesopotamia, a long way away from the promised land of Canaan, which he had never seen before in his life. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land. He lived there as a foreigner, as an exile, living in tents, temporary housing, with Isaac and Jacob, his son and grandson, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Go to verse 15. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, 
for he has prepared for them a city. Go to verse 25. Moses chose to be mistreated along with the people of God. This is when they were in slavery in the land of Egypt. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking forward to his reward. Verse 35. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. This is probably referring to some incidents from the lives of the prophets Elijah and Elisha, raising uh, these sons who had died and giving them back to their mothers. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released, probably because in order to be released, they would have had to deny their faith. So they refused to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Okay. Did you notice the words better and greater there? Abraham and his family were seeking a better country. Moses regarded disgrace for, the, for Christ as of greater value than all the treasures of Egypt. Some prisoners chose death when they could have been released because they were seeking a better resurrection. So it's a consistent theme here. What is it saying? Well, let's think first what it's not saying. It's not saying these people obeyed God just because it was the right thing to do. No, they obeyed because they were seeking a reward that was greater, that was better than anything they could have had otherwise. Notice, too, it's also not saying that there's no happiness in pursuing other rewards. I've actually heard of people who have ended up walking away from Christ because somebody taught them that all atheists and other non-Christians were all unhappy people. And then they met some happy atheists. And it completely wrecked their faith because they had believed something that the Bible doesn't teach. The Bible never says that unbelievers can't be happy. It says their happiness is temporary. And it cannot compare to the ultimate happiness that God promises to those who trust him. I mean, think about it. Okay, Moses, he's a prince of Egypt, right? He's living in the wealthiest, greatest empire on earth at that time. Would he have experienced any happiness, any pleasure in enjoying the treasures of Egypt? Of course. Of course he would have. For a while. But he looked at that reward, he looked at the treasures of Egypt, and he compared it to the reward that God promised him, and he said, I'm going with God. And that's the point, that whatever rewards you can obtain apart from God, no matter how pleasant, 
no matter how pleasurable, they cannot begin to compare to the rewards that are promised to us, that are wrapped up for us, so to speak, in the person of Jesus Christ. His rewards are always worth waiting for. They are always worth suffering for. They're even worth dying for. And the point is that in order to live by faith, in order to make the choices God would have you make, in order for you to do the things God would have you do, you have to believe that. You have to believe that the rewards that God offers you in Christ promises you in Christ are greater than any other reward you could have. So in the interests of strengthening our faith so that we draw near to God, so that we experience His pleasure, let's just think for a little bit about why His rewards are so much greater. Always. Why are they always greater? Because these are the kinds of things we need to remember in those moments that we're faced with a choice between pursuing his reward and pursuing some other reward. Because see, that's the choice we face every time we're tempted to sin. Are we going to pursue God's reward or are we going to pursue something else? No matter how good an alternative to God's reward is, his reward is always far better. Why is that? Well, here's one reason. God's reward will never end. <laughs> when we experience, ultimately, His reward in its fullness, it will never end. Other rewards always do. They always, well, they never last. Let's put it that way. So look again at the example of Moses in 11.25. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the, notice the word, fleeting pleasures of sin. Have we used that word much? Fleeting? Well, that's, that's what Moses said no to. Uh, the pleasures of sin are fleeting. Now, notice, they're definitely pleasures. It doesn't say the miseries of sin. Okay? Nobody sins out of a sense of obligation. They sin because they think it'll be fun. It'll be enjoyable. It'll be pleasurable. So the issue with sin is usually not that it's some terrible thing you, 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 uh, you'd like to have. The alternative to God's rewards are almost never bad things in and of themselves. They're usually good things that we misuse. They're good gifts from God that we're, that we're using, misusing in ways that are unloving. That's why they're sinful, not because in and of themselves they're inherently evil. So, you know, wealth, that might be a, a reward you would pursue rather than pursue God's reward. Well, wealth's a good thing. So is food. So is sex. So is good health. It's when we pursue those things apart from God's intentions, apart from God's directions, 
apart from God's will, that's when those rewards become a serious problem. Because when you misuse God's gifts, the pleasure you experience will be fleeting. Fleeting. Short. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, there's a comparison between the suffering that Christians experience now in this age, a comparison between those sufferings and the happiness that is yet to come. And it says this in chapter 4, verse 17. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Seen versus unseen does not mean real versus fake or true versus imaginary. It's the things that are here now and the things that aren't here yet because they're promised but not here yet. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Eternal. So you see, the question really isn't, do you want to be happy? I know you do. The question is, how happy do you want to be? Do you want to be happy for just a few moments, so to speak, in this age? Or do you want to be happy forever in the age to come? Now, I know your life right now might feel really long. Your sufferings, your afflictions might not feel light and momentary at all. If you're hurting, it feels like forever. It does. But compared to what's coming, it's short. Reason number two. So reason number one was God's reward will never end. Other rewards always do. Reason number two, God's reward provides complete satisfaction. Other rewards, their satisfaction is only partial. So... Complete satisfaction versus partial satisfaction. I get this mainly from the last part of verse 16 where it says about those who seek God's heavenly country and live as exiles and strangers in this world. It says, therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. Now, that's a figure of speech. And what it means is he's the opposite of ashamed of them. He's pleased with them. That's the word in verse 6. Pleasing God. He's delighted with them. He's actually proud of them. And the point is, when God is pleased with us, we enter into His delight and we find it to be the most satisfying thing there is. So in a parable that Jesus told, he told this parable of a master and some servants, and he gave his servants all something to do, and a couple of them did it, and the other one didn't. And uh, when all is said and done, the, the servants who did their master's will, they hear the master say this, 
Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Look at this. Come and share your master's happiness. Share your master's happiness. Okay, question for you. How happy is God? How happy is God? How satisfying is it to see him smile at you? Yeah, we've all seen children, you know, especially when they're little. Dad, look at me. Mom, look at me. You know, and they just want so much to see their parent smile at them and be delighted. They delight in that. It lights them up. That's the idea. To experience his delight. To see his smile. To hear him singing over you with joy. I am not making that up. That's Zephaniah 3.17. Look at it. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Wow. You and I long for a satisfaction. Don't try to deny it. You do. You long for a satisfaction that nothing in this world can satisfy. Because we're not meant to be fully satisfied with the gifts, but only with the giver. Listen to C.S. Lewis. He says, most people, if they had really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. And that's what God promises. Full satisfaction in the world to come. The satisfying enjoyment of his eternal pleasure. I'd love to elaborate on this. Sometime go read John 17 and see what Jesus prays for there in John chapter 17. Because his ultimate prayer is that we would enter into the eternal fellowship of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and delight in Jesus the way the Father delights in Jesus. It's an incredible thought. All right, reason number three, that God's rewards are always better is because his rewards always far outweigh any cost. His rewards always far outweigh any cost. Following Jesus will cost you something. It might cost you everything. He said so. Matthew 16, 24. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, say no to himself, say no to his agenda, say no to what he thinks. Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. I just can't even fathom how shocking that would have been to the people who heard him. 
Because they saw people taking up their cross and they knew they weren't coming back. So the point is never that following Jesus won't cost you anything. The point is that what you will gain will so far outweigh what you lose that it will never even occur to you to describe what you've given up as a sacrifice when all is said and done. It's such a good deal. I know that sounds really crass. That's a crass way of putting it, but I'm just trying to get the point across. It's such a good deal that you'd be crazy not to take it. That's exactly the point Jesus made in some of his parables. Like this one in Matthew 13, 44. Look at it. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then, in his sense of duty and obligation, oh wait, no. In his joy, he went and sold all he had and bought that field. So here's the idea. You're walking through a vacant field you stub your toe on something, you look, there's a corner of a chest sticking out of the dirt. And when you dig it up, you find this enormous chest and it's chock full of solid gold bars and diamonds and rubies. And you just do some quick math and you figure out this treasure is worth like $500 billion. <laughs> but the only way you can legally claim it is to buy the field. And you're a little strapped for cash. So you got to go sell everything else you've got and come up with, I don't know, 500000 to buy the field. Okay, question. Is spending five hundred k to gain $500 billion, is that worth it? Are you going to feel sorry for yourself? Not even close. Not even close, and that's the point Jesus is making. And the supreme example of this the supreme example is how Jesus himself pursued his Father's will to obtain our salvation. Going to the cross. Look at chapter 12, verse 2. Jesus, for the joy, look at that, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He willingly paid the price because he looked ahead to the joy that it would bring. His delight in our salvation and our delight in him. Let me finish up by saying it another way. Our problem is not that we pursue happiness. Sometimes that's the diagnosis that's made. I don't think it's a biblical diagnosis. Our problem is not that we pursue happiness, and that's why we make foolish decisions. Our problem is that we pursue our happiness outside of God and His good design. And we think we've got a better idea. Why is it why is it that people who profess to believe in Jesus so often live their lives just like people who don't believe in Jesus? 
why, why is it that people don't take more seriously Christ's command to make disciples of all nations and live their lives in light of that? Why do we spend money on all kinds of stuff that we don't really need instead of giving generously to God's work, to missions, to alleviating suffering around the world? Why do so many Christians, professing Christians, ignore God's design for marriage and sexuality and reject what the Bible teaches about these things? Is it because they want to be happy? No, it's because they think they'll be happier doing something other than what Jesus says to do. And that's not just wrong. According to this, it's flat out stupid. When we think we'll be happier doing something other than what Jesus says, we're choosing temporary happiness over eternal happiness. We're choosing partial satisfaction over total satisfaction. We're choosing a tiny reward with an enormous cost over an enormous reward, over a cost that ultimately will seem utterly insignificant. And ultimately, we're choosing death over life. It makes no sense. Sin makes no sense. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways know Him, and He will make your path straight. So what do we need to do? Well, we need to saturate our minds and our hearts with God's promises. The rewards that He promises to those who love Jesus. Do not get conned by all of the false advertisements of this world. They promise you so much, and they can't deliver. And, it, and, the, and what the world promises has such a huge hidden price, such a huge hidden cost. So turn off the media, get your face into your Bible, and see what God promises you. And then we need to pray for one another, because we struggle with this. We need an appetite for Jesus that surpasses our appetite for anything else. And, and the only one who can give us that is the Holy Spirit of God. And the way we stoke that appetite is with the promises of God and the prayers of God's people. And we need to encourage one another to believe that his reward will be worth it in spite of whatever cost we have to pay. We need to encourage one another. See, this is how we can win our battles with sin. Every time that choice comes, God's reward or something else. God's reward, something else. We need to encourage one another so that we can win our battles with sin so we can experience God's pleasure. We need each other's help in this. This is a fight. It's the fight for joy. It's the fight not to settle for something less than God promises. Let's help each other fight. Let's pray together.
Father, if we fight this battle the way you have told us to, the battle, the victory is assuredly already been won by Jesus. But you tell us we have to fight, we have to believe, we have to seek you and the reward found in you. And so help us, help us see that your rewards are always better, always greater, always worth whatever it costs. Lord, we're weak, we struggle, we need each other's help. Will you just enable us to encourage and help each other seek the reward that you alone can give us and not settle for anything less? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.